On this week's episode, we welcome former Attorney General William Barr. The former United States Attorney General who served during the Bush and the Trump administration, the Honorable William Barr is joining us today to talk about his new book, One D Thing After Another. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And welcome to our broadcast house. Thank you. It's good to see you. You know, you said you took the job as Attorney General because you feared a constitutional crisis. As you look back at all that is known now, Mr. Attorney General, do you believe those pushing that constitutional crisis, some in the FBI, the ghostwriting media, media, firm fusions, GPSs, who hired Chris Steele and Nellie Orr and the Clinton campaign, to name just a few, do you believe the allegations of Russian collusion, or did they collude to manufacture them? I don't, I don't think there was ever a legitimate basis to ascribe collusion to Trump or his, to his campaign. And uh, I think it was uh, started off per- potentially as a political uh, hit on the president. Uh, just why it went as far as it did and what the motivations were of those doing it is something that John Durham is investigating, and I hope he will cover in detail in his final report. Why do you think his report is taking so long, and when do you expect it to be finalized? Well, people, uh, you know, have to focus on the timeline. He he did come in around uh, April and May of 2019. Uh, But he wasn't able to get into the FBI aspect of it, the spying on the campaign, the crossfire hurricane investigation, until the IG finished his work, which wasn't until December of 2019. That's when that report came out, December, the end of 2019. And then a few months later, three months later, the grand juries shut down around the country because of COVID. And that meant that people knew he didn't have access to one where he could compel people to come and talk to him. So people didn't have to cooperate. Uh, and uh, it wasn't until a couple of months before the election where, where, the, where the, co- the effects of COVID on the court system really stopped. So uh, I understand why it's taken so long. And it's a complicated case. Uh, so, uh, I, but I, I do think that, that he will be uh, bringing any further charges he intends to bring and complete a report fairly, uh, fairly soon. You know, the Washington Post and a litany of other media outlets who pushed the Russian collusion um, narrative for years, I mean many years, more recently though, they have scrubbed, erased their prior claims that the Steele dossier was factually um, correct. What role, uh, Mr. Barr, did the media play in keeping the now discredited Russian collusion story alive for years? Right. Well, right after the election, uh, it seemed that it went on turbocharge, uh, and the media did. And anything Russian, any potential link or any uh, conspiratorial theory about relationship with the Russians was aired and, and sensationalized by the media. And that's what was driving it. By, by May, uh, when they brought in Mueller, uh, it was a feeding frenzy. And the administration, I think, was largely immobilized by it. 
uh, it looked to me, I, I was suspicious of the narrative, of the collusion narrative, and it looked to me that it could bring down the presidency. And uh, so, and, and, and furthermore, the FBI and the department were in the middle of this maelstrom, and uh, they were getting hit from all sides. And uh, I eventually concluded that uh, I would accept it if the president wanted me to do it because I felt that I was in a position where I could sort of right the ship. Was there any evidence, I mean, the rumors are there, and there, what there are rumors, that the Hillary campaign fueled this Steele dossier and this collusion with the Russians to the media? Well, you know, because it's under investigation, I don't want to get into too many details, but, uh, you know, there, there's no question, I think, the, the Clinton campaign uh, acknowledged that they they were trying to link Trump and Putin and the idea that Trump was sort of a puppet of Putin and that was one of the you know the lines of attack that they tried to develop over the summer of 2016 and we do know that the dossier was done by somebody who was essentially being paid by the uh, Clinton campaign so uh, through through a law firm so uh, that was clearly part of the of the uh, political process, how that dossier was uh, put together. No, another fascinating aspect of your book was big tech and China. You really hone in on the impact and the fallback from it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I have a, I have a chapter on on the China threat to the United States, which is not only military, they, they've been investing steadily in their military and have a very powerful military. You know, what we're seeing in Ukraine right now with the Russians is they're not 10 feet tall. But the Chinese military is very formidable. And uh, in addition to that, they pose a technological danger to the United States. The United States has been the technological leader uh, in the world since the late 1800s, going into the, the 20th century. And it's that technological leadership that creates all the opportunity for people in society, our prosperity, the economic growth, as well as the national security. I mean, think of the internet. That and we dominate uh, all the internet companies and so forth, uh, and all the technology that's flowed out of that, because. We invented it and we developed it. It's now, the technology is now being stolen by China. All our new technology, all the technology that's going to be dominating in the future is being stolen by China from us and they're developing it. And they're pouring a lot of money and effort into that. Things like robotics, artificial intelligence, that kind of technology that'll control the future. And uh, if they start dominating these future industries, it's going to have a dramatic effect on the United States, our security, our standard of living, our future opportunities. Yeah, but, you know, the, the, the issue there is, that, is as if we make it easy for them. They come in, they infiltrate our academic institutions. Right. They infiltrate our technology. <laughs> they infiltrate the lobbying. They mm -hmm. buy politicians, they buy real estate. They seem if they have money, then they can find someone who once had character and integrity, and all of a sudden, they have a price. They could be rented. 
right. at the cost of America's future. They, they take advantage of our openness as a society, and particularly in academia. You know, the, the ethos of academia is, oh, you know, this is all public information, or it should be. And, and so they take advantage of that and uh, academic freedom, and they, they have people in academia who are learning some of the advanced technology and secrets that we have and uh, can be uh, compromised by the Chinese. Uh, intelligence services. So, you know, uh, we say they have a lot of what we call non-traditional collectors. Traditionally, it would be someone working out of the Chinese embassy for the intelligence service, but now, you know, it could be a grad student who's working on a project at a university. And uh, there's no end to the degree of technology that they're seeking, whether it be agricultural technology, railroad <laughs> technology. Uh, uh, it, it's, it, the, I was shocked at how broad uh, the effort here is in the United States to, uh, to steal our technology. And uh, I was very disappointed when the Biden administration shut down what we called the China Initiative, which was targeted at the Chinese efforts. You, you know, you have been privy to information and things that have happened around the world that you have to die with. You could never reveal it. But from your experience, and man, you have the experience, how do we and can we stop the Chinese? Yes, we can. I mean, there, there are two things. One, uh, you know, in any crisis we've had in our country in the past with a potential foreign adversary, we've, we have come together. So, you know, in, in World War II, we had American industry, American academia, and the government working together to win World War II. And we had good allies. Uh, in, in the Cold War, the same thing, Sputnik. It shocked our country that all of a sudden the Russian technology was so advanced. And again, the academia, business, and government started working together. But now we don't see as much of that. A lot of business people don't view themselves anymore primarily as American, but as citizens of the world, and they're not willing to, to help as much as in the past. But, I'm, but I think that as the threat becomes clearer, and this situation in Ukraine may have that silver lining, it may galvanize people and, and remind them of what the stakes are and that freedom has a cost and that there are bad people in the world that will use force. But I'm hopeful that we will see more cooperation and we have allies, the Australians, the India, Japan and other countries, the British, uh, who uh, are interested in working with us and NATO is a good example and reminds people of how by sticking together in opposing uh, tyrants. Uh, we can protect freedom, protect our own freedom. Does you, should Ukraine frighten us, scare us, our stability here, many oceans away? Uh, well, I, I think it is of concern because Russia is a nuclear power. You know, basically, American foreign policy has, has always been based on the idea that we can't let a hostile power govern take control in Europe and we can't let a hostile power take control in Asia. And in Europe, NATO is in a very commanding position in terms of conventional forces. But 
Russia has nuclear weapons, so there's always a concern there of not getting into something that could result in nuclear use of nuclear weapons. That's the risk, and so far I think the, the crisis is being managed in a way that, that there is not uh, a grave threat of, of use of nuclear weapons. Not yet. Not yet. Uh, longer term, China is much more of a danger in, in Asia. Their power in Asia is much greater than Russia's power in Europe. There was an interesting story written a few years ago in The Hill asserting three FBI agents went to the home of a Russian oligarch just before the 2016 election and asked him to conclude, collude with them in the Russia collusion narrative. Is there, is there any thread between the discredited Russia collusion narrative and what is happening in Ukraine today? Has the constant information warfare against Russia, and we know they're good at it too, some of which, like the collusion narrative, which was false, put Russia and Putin in a corner and contributed to their dangerous decision-making today? Uh, I do think there is a, a threat. I do think Russiagate has contributed to the situation today because normally, after Trump was elected, the United States would have tried to engage with Russia to see if we could put our relationship on some firm footing that wouldn't involve, uh, you know, a hair trigger or, or serious conflict. You, we will remember, even during the Obama administration, Hillary Clinton tried to reset uh, our relations with Russia. So everyone recognized the need to engage with Russia to see if we could work out some modus vivendi with them. And uh, Russiagate really stopped Trump from being able to do that uh, because, uh, you know, the media idea that he was in Putin's pocket. So he could not really freely negotiate a sensible and reasonable uh, arrangement with the Russians. And yet, and so estrangement continued throughout the Trump administration. Now, I don't know if there was a formula uh, that would have worked, but we never even explored one. And right now they're negotiating uh, trying to negotiate a formula, and, and people are getting killed. Well, we could have maybe done that before people started getting killed. And Russiagate, I think, had that uh, price tag. That was the consequence of it. Uh, and uh, as I say in my book, once Biden came in, uh, he had an opportunity to negotiate, but with Afghanistan and his uh, curtailing America independence on energy, which then increased Russian leverage again over Europe. Uh, I think he saw an opportunity, I predicted he would see an opportunity and go and take what he wanted, which he did. You know, you mentioned the president. You know, conversely, Joe Biden said the Hunter Biden laptop was a Russian plot, and the media said the Hunter Biden in Ukraine stories were discredited. Was it a Russian plot? Are those stories of Hunter Biden in Ukraine and other foreign countries discredited? And if not, how are those untruths a reflection of political discourse in our country today? Well, um, you know, I, I, I won't talk to, about all the allegations about Hunter Biden, but as you say, during the campaign, uh, his laptop got released. Uh, parts of it started to be released. 
And Biden did say during the debates that it was Russian disinformation. He cited the fact that many experts were saying it was Russian disinformation. Well, he knew that was false. He knew that was false when he said it. And that was quite appalling to me that he would say that in the debate. Uh, and uh, so the, 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 the uh, DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, and the FBI both came out within a couple of days and said, no, there's no indication of, that this is Russian disinformation. But the media never covered that. And so the media was on board with the idea of suppressing the information before the election. But what it said, you know, it, it's, uh, the, to me, it, it tells us more about the role the media plays, the mainstream media. Uh, they're much more partisan than they've ever been. And they, they, they actually play the role of pro political operatives trying to help one party and sabotage another party. At the expense of our credibility. You know, President Theodore Roosevelt, uh, Mr. Barr, wrote this remarkable warning to the nation almost a hundred years ago, behind the ostensible government sits enthroned an invisible government owing no allegiance and acknowledging no responsibility to the people to destroy this invisible government, to befile the unholy alliance between corrupt business and corrupt politics is the first task of the statesmanship of today. Invisible government is a synonym for what today is called the deep state. Do you believe there is a deep state of unelected officials engaged in corrupt activities? Uh, I do think that there is a, a deep state in the sense that there are a lot of people in, in, in the uh, federal bureaucracy who think they know better than the American people and think they know better than the people who come in for a short period of time within the administration. And they try to sabotage, uh, and this is particularly true of Republican administrations, they try to sabotage Republican administrations and, and keep uh, the policies they prefer in place. Now, I don't necessarily think it's a, you know, highly coordinated uh, conspiracy with, with someone calling the shots. Uh, but they don't need that. They know what to do. And uh, I think in some agencies it's stronger than in other agencies. But there definitely is a group in the uh, bureaucracy that views themselves as uh, having, you know, the wisdom to guide the country and, and uh, ignore the Democratic leaders. But do you believe that the subject of the Mueller investigation Trump's alleged collusion with the Russians to win the 2016 presidential election was instigated um, by deep state individuals. Well, again, that goes to the motivations of people. I've I've said that uh, you know there certainly was some role played by campaign, political campaign, and. I've often said that I didn't see that there was an adequate basis for the FBI to initiate an well, you investigation. Know, you know, not, not to interrupt you, because yeah. I hate it. You know, they, they gave examples like the FBI, McCabe, DOJ, or Senator Feinstein, Mark Warner, Warner, Clinton campaign, George Soros, the shadow media, Fusion, GPS, and others. 
I, I think all those people, well, I, I would say that, uh, as I was saying, the FBI, I've never felt there was an adequate basis for them to go and investigate the campaign. Now, what their motivations were, whether it was partisan motivations, uh, you know, that's something that Durham is looking at. But I've always felt it was inexplicable what they did. And then there were other uh, people, obviously, that were willing to jump on this bandwagon and milk it for all they could to hurt President Trump. You know, I, I, I strongly, and not because you sit here today, you know, I read many books. I, I think this book is such a history lesson, not only about um, your years in the White House, but the things that you've done um, in your career. And one of the things that you talk about ex extensively in the book is the crime and drug problem. And to really bring it home was the, this sad, unbelievable situation that happened at West Point. Right. Yeah, I, I think the drug problem uh, is getting out of control. And right now we're focused on Ukraine, and we should be focused on Ukraine, but uh, right now the drug problem uh, is on a very bad trajectory and it's going to come back to haunt us. More and more deadly drugs are coming across the border. Fentanyl is, is like murder. They mix it in with other drugs, and the teeniest amount, two milligrams, can kill you. And people don't know what they're ingesting. It's like playing Russian roulette. So we have 100,000 deaths a year from overdose, 100,000. That, that's more than all the lives that we lost in, uh, the United States lost in Vietnam, all together. And so that's the equivalent of losing that many Americans that we'd lose in a major war every year from the drug problem. Now, one of the things I argue in my book, and it goes back to my experience with H.W. Bush uh, back in the uh, late, uh, the early 90s uh, to today, is we have to attack drugs at their source outside the United States, where they're produced and where they're sent on their way to the United States. I'm not opposed to locking up the people in the local communities that are distributing them, but that's a losing game over the long haul. We will just put more and more people in prison without really making a dent in the drug trafficking. We have to go after the cartels. Uh, and uh, they're in Mexico, and right now, uh, they're like states within a state. The Mexican government doesn't have control over them. It's like no man's land down there and they can operate with impunity, and they're making hundreds of billions of dollars. And they, with that money, they can corrupt just about any government. And so right now, we have no man's land to the south, and they can operate with complete impunity and send these deadly drugs up to the United States. That's a serious challenge for our country. The, the Mexican government simply cannot control it. It's out of control. And we're going to have to do something about it. We can't, the United States cannot continue to lose 100,000 people a year uh, while the cartels operate without any opposition down in Mexico. What are your thoughts on what the DAs are doing in places like New York right. and Baltimore? Right. This is, you know, this is the revolving door justice system that, that I first had to deal with under the elder President Bush. I, I'll never forget, I went into a a meeting in Trenton, New Jersey. This was back about 1991. 
and uh, it was in the inner city in Trenton, and these older couples, maybe in their in their in their sixties, one of them, the spokesman uh, said for them, he had silver hair and everything. He said, "Mr. Barr, look down the street. There are bars on all the windows, on our all our windows and doors. We're the ones living behind the bars, while these punks rule the street." And we're spending our golden years as prisoners in our own home. Please, you know, the federal government has to do something to help. And I heard that all around the country, and we did. And we started dealing with the revolving door system of justice by pushing the states to take the repeat violent offenders, the shooters, the people with big, long histories of violence, and take them off the street and put them in prison for significant periods of time uh, that they deserved. And uh, the crime rate has, after that, the crime rate reduced for 22 years. Huh. And it was cut in half, cut in half. So the, the last year, when I was Attorney General under Bush, when I left office, there were about 12,500 African Americans killed, murdered every year. 12,500. Uh, by, by 2014, it had dropped to 70, uh, 7,000, 7,400, something like that. A lot of lives saved over 22 years. But unfortunately, now we're seeing the same revolving door system. You see, we see it every day in cities like New York and Chicago, where these shooters have long criminal history records and have not been put in prison. And People are getting killed as a result, and the crime rate, the murder rate in particular, is going back up again. So we have to, once again, focus on the repeat violent offenders, especially the ones who are using guns, felons using guns in their crimes, and we got to put them in prison. You know, Ukraine is the most important issue in the world as we sit here today, and it may get much worse. The Biden family has a strange history in Ukraine. The VP knows Biden as a man of, of uh, as a kind of czar after the maiden revolution. And Ali, his son, again, Hunter Biden, getting huge paychecks from oligarchs that he seems to have no qualifications to receive. This is what the research shows. Two questions. Is this another example of deep state behavior? And did Hunter Biden represent more figures in Ukraine than what has been disclosed to date? Um, well, I can't. I can't get into the, uh, the second thing, but but you know, it's an example of of um, greed and and impropriety in the in broad sense of selling your office. Now, the conflict of laws statutes don't apply to the president or the vice president. And so, and so something that, you know, might be wrong for a lesser official is not necessarily wrong for the vice president or the president. Uh, that's, by the way, why Trump could continue to have a business and so forth while he was president, even, even though his kids were running the business. Um, but uh, I've often felt that both parties do this and the Republicans do it is they put too much emphasis on whether something is, a, is illegal and can be prosecuted versus just looking at the facts and saying this was wrong and it shows shameful behavior. Because the, the standard for proving something is a crime is very, very high. 
you have to meet all the standards of the crime and you have to do it beyond reasonable doubt. But people can decide whether somebody is honest or dishonest with less information than it takes to prove a crime. And I, th and I feel that that behavior was shameful behavior for the, for the vice president's son to be uh, used in Ukraine that way and being paid that kind of money with no experience. People are not stupid. They saw what was going on. And whether it's a crime or not, it certainly was reprehensible behavior. You know, you're in a tough position. You know, I've read some of the statements that the president has issued to different networks maligning you. And it's obvious to me, by his writing those statements, he hasn't read the book. Right. Or somebody's feeding him this information. It's yeah, obvious, because right. if he read the book, you'd say, oh, this guy's fair. I mean, your book was fair, factual. And because you go out, as you just mentioned, uh, the bar that you just mentioned for evidentiary, when you go out and you have this evidence, you got to prove the case. When you went out um, to decide through facts, not emotions, not through party loyalty, not through loyalty to the president, but loyalty to the Constitution and the office that was taken by you, whether or not the election was stolen. You go into it unbiased. You've take, you're not taking sides. You just got to go where the evidence leads you. And you're not the only one that reached this conclusion. Right. But your voice was important because you were, you were the attorney general appointed by the president of the United States. But it's the integrity. Even when you tell the truth, you're maligned by both sides. Because mm -hmm. you don't go far enough, <laughs> you didn't prosecute him, and then he criticizes you in the process. So you can't win, so you have to. Truth has to be your mantle if you're gonna be in a position like yours. Right, I've told people, you know, there was once a politician who, who, who asked me during the administration of W. Bush, he said, I th I'm thinking of becoming attorney general. I think I'd like that job. I said, you, you're a politician, you're interested in higher office. If you become attorney general, you have to be ready to just say goodbye to all of that because you have to do what's right in each case and that makes enemies and you end up with everyone criticizing you, but that goes with the, the territory. You're right, I mean, you just have to be willing to do what you think is right. And that's one of the reasons I, I thought that I might be uh, good for the job this time around, because I was uh, 69, I had retired, uh, I wasn't looking for anything in the future. I could afford to take the hit. Uh, people in their 40s and 50s, they have to worry about their future livelihood and so forth, and, and uh, given the way our society operates, these days, I thought I had the freedom to be independent, and uh, so I, you know, in terms of the election, uh, I, I very much wanted the president to win. I came into the administration. I thought that these elections, 2016 and 2020, were critical to the country and our future, and I, I very much wanted the president to win, and I was very disappointed by the outcome. So I had no reason to, you know turn the other way if there was if there was real evidence of fraud but there really wasn't and uh, most of the stuff that has come out is just you know sort of obviously uh, without foundation I would just you know I would just urge 
uh, you know, my, my fellow uh, conservative Republicans, people who supported Trump as I did, to go and look at the actual election results in states like Pennsylvania, Arizona, Wisconsin, where the president ran weaker than the Republican ticket. A lot of Republicans and independents went out, they voted Republican, except for him. And uh, six, so in, in, in Pennsylvania, 60,000 Republicans went out, voted for the Republican ticket, except for him. Uh, you can't win a national election if, you, if, if you're, you know, losing that kind of support in your own party. And he was in the suburbs, particularly among women. Another important aspect of your book, um, and it goes back when you talked about Cap Weinberg during Bush's years and how they dropped the indictment on him just before the election. Many people believe that's why Bush yeah. lost. Sure. But then you go back to Comey. And Comey and the emails with Hillary Clinton, uh, and the former president wanted you to investigate Comey. Talk about from your book what was the difference in the similarities between the two. Well, in the Comey case, you know this this was the issue of him giving some memos to his lawyer of his memos for the record of some discussions he had with the pres uh, with President Trump. And the issue there was whether he could be prosecuted for class releasing classified information to his lawyer. And, uh, you know, it was determined by the, the professionals and by the political people who supervised them that we didn't have enough evidence to prove criminal intent. And under our standards, unless we feel we have enough evidence to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt, we shouldn't be indicting somebody. Uh, obviously, the president wanted Comey, you know, just from his public, he didn't talk to me personally about it, but clearly from his public statements, he wanted Comey uh, indicted and was mad at me that, uh, that we didn't indict Comey. Uh, we followed the standard. Now, in the case of the elder Bush back in the 92 election, what happened was he was, Bush, now the press did a lot of bad things, you know, to get to, to weaken Bush over the preceding uh, year and a half. But right at the very end, Bush was uh, picking up momentum going into the last weekend. And a special counsel uh, dropped an indictment on the Friday before the election that mentions Trump in the indictment, uh, not, not Trump, Bush in the indictment, uh, and led people to believe that Bush was in trouble and somehow was involved in criminal activity. But he wasn't. And, uh, but they knew what they were doing. Yeah, they yeah, did it on purpose mm -hmm. to, to, to sandbag him. And the bottom fell out of his, uh, of his momentum over the weekend, and he lost. So that was an abuse. That's where, that's where uh, it's very uh, dangerous for the department to take those kinds of actions on the eve of an election. And uh, especially uh, if, if they're not, uh, you know, there's no evidence to support a criminal case. You make a strong case for religious liberty mm -hmm. and school choice in your book. Right. I th so I, I think uh, the framers believed that religious liberty was the foundation on which our system was based. Not that everyone has to be a Christian, but they felt that the Judeo-Christian tradition in the West uh, gave people a moral compass and enabled us to have limited government. 
so we, we wouldn't call on the government as much and the government could play a limited role because people would have a moral compass and know what was right and do what was right without a coercive government. That was the whole idea. And I think if you look at Western civilization over the past uh, few hundred years, the religious realm has been sort of crumbling, the religious consensus. And if you look at our public school system, what's happened is, how, how do we have a, a public school system in a pluralistic society where people, well, some people have traditional religious beliefs and others don't? And I think we're going to have to allow people to choose schools be, and, 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 and have people able to attend schools that have a religious orientation. That's what they do in Britain. In Britain, uh, you know, uh, Hindus, Muslims, Church of England, Roman Catholic, they can go to those schools and it's at state expense. Uh, and, and even France, the most, one of the most secular countries, same way. So in Europe, that's how they've accommoda accommodated pluralism. But over here, what we did for a hundred years is we, we really had sort of Protestantism in our schools. We read the, they read the Bible, they said the Lord's Prayer and so forth, and they tried to teach character based on traditional Christian, Judeo-Christian values. But then in the 60s, they started stripping out. I call it secularization by subtraction. They start stripping out any reference to Christianity. And then, starting in the middle of the Obama administration, I call it secularization by addition. Because once you strip away the Judeo-Christian tradition, what is it that undergirds our values? It's a vacuum. And they've tried to fill it with these alternative belief systems like you know, critical race theory or transgenderism. And they're isms. And they, they're trying to substitute uh, these belief systems for religion. And some of that involves aggressively teaching kids stuff that is antithetical to their parents and, and their family's religion. And we can't have that. I mean, if you tell a kid, for example, you know, you can be any gender you want, and there's more than two, and, you, and no one has anything to say about it, that's contrary to you know, the traditional Judeo-Christian view of, of human beings. And schools, state schools should not be able to do that. And, uh, and, and, and if there are schools that do it, then parents should have a choice of going to a school that doesn't do it and, and teaches uh, things that are more consistent with their religion. And I also think, it, as we've discussed, you know, that, that is uh, ultimately the solution to the uh, poor education that is being given by public schools in, our, in many of our uh, inner cities. You know, contrast the Trump administration, AG Post, and that of President Bush, what was the difference? What is similar? For the AG? Yes. I, I think for the, for the uh, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, uh, the, the AG in both administrations was involved in national security matters. Uh, that's become a more important part of the portfolio. International cooperation has become more important, probably more so in the, in the Trump years, working out cooperative arrangements with foreign governments uh, to fight transnational crime. Crime has become more of a global enterprise. Um, I would say that uh, 
the Bush administration was didn't have a revolutionary spirit to it because it was still consolidating the Reagan revolution. Reagan was the guy who stormed the castle and, and Bush was essentially consolidating those gains. And there was a very sort of buttoned down uh, uh, atmosphere in the administration of managing uh, the, the uh, you know, the, the conservative policies that had been installed. And um, Bush was a very decisive person, very comfortable in his own skin, uh, never blamed other people. He owned his decisions, never blamed other people. And so there wasn't much drama <laughs> within the administration. Trump w was, was very different in that he was a very uh, mercurial personality, very impulsive personality. Very visual. Very visual. Uh, he was worried always about how things looked, which is a legitimate you know, in, in the Bush administration, or in the Reagan administration, actually, it was Mike Deaver that had, you know, that was always worried about how things would look on TV. But, uh, and, and uh, his, his impulsiveness gave a certain dynamism uh, to, to the administration. It had some good sides, but it also had some bad sides, and that there was a lot of internal drama and sometimes chaos in the administration, which he didn't have in the Bush administration. Do Democratic attorney generals tend to focus on priorities differently than that of the GOP AGs? I mean, how hard did Holder team term work to make sure that uh, that you came on board, you had everything you needed? And who, who how much did the president work? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think on, on key issues, I mean, Republican admit, uh, AGs tend to focus more on uh, you know, violent crime, fighting the drug war, uh, those kinds of things. And tr tr Trump was a good uh, president for an attorney general on, on that portfolio, on, on, the, on the key issues, Im illegal immigration and sanctuary cities and all that. You knew where he was and, you know, he, he backed the uh, the Justice Department, and he, you believe those are serious issues. Those are critical, critical issues, issues. Yeah. Cri especially you know violent crime is the most serious issue because uh, it you know takes people's lives and 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 uh, you know hurts whole communities. Uh, so uh, he, we knew we had his backing there, and he backed law enforcement and. Uh, you know, we always knew we he'd be supportive of what we were up to, um, and you know it was the same with Bush. Bush doubled prison capacity, federal prison capacity, and we were the only during the Bush administration. We were the only agency to have increase domestic agency to have increases in our budget. Went up fifteen percent a year. Everyone else went down uh, because as I, those were you know, high crime rates in those days. They'd been going up for 30 years, and, and yeah. Is it, is it true that early on in your young career you worked for the CIA? Yes. You did? Yeah. Yep. That was my first uh, goal uh, when I was growing up. I wanted to, my father had been in the equivalent of the CIA during World War II called the OSS, and I wanted to go into the CIA. That was my career goal. So I studied Chinese and became an expert in China because everyone else was an expert in Russia.
And then when I graduated, Nixon had gone to China, and all of a sudden everyone was talking about China. So I was hired by the CIA initially uh, for my Chinese studies background. And my, my mother uh, kept on saying, you know, you should have another arrow in your quiver. That was her favorite expression. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you should go to law school. So I went to law school at night while I worked at CIA, and I met George H.W. Bush. Did they he, pay for your law no, education? No, okay. no I, I paid for it. And, uh, but I, the invest, there were investigations of the CIA going on, and I met the director, George H.W. Bush, who had been appointed director by President Ford, and that sort of took me off. Yeah, took me off on another. Um, any regrets about your four years on the Trump? Let no, me two years on Trump. Two years. Two yeah. Years. If you had to do it all over again, knowing what yeah. you know now, would you have served as a well? That's general? a different question. Whether I have regrets, <laughs> I don't have any regrets. Uh, I would make the same decision. You would serve him, knowing what you know now. Well, no. You're hesitating. I don't regret having done what I, I was disappointed because I felt a lot of people had sacrificed a lot uh, to, to, to get his, you know, to have his administration succeed and be in a position for a second term. And I believe he could have won easily a second term. I think he was up against an incredibly weak candidate, probably the weakest ever to run. And he lost, and I think part of that was his lack of self-control over some of his, you know, personality traits, and uh, that was very disappointing to me. But even saying that, I think the administration accomplished a lot, and uh, you know, working on behalf of the American people is a great honor, and working with the good people in that administration and the Department of Justice and others in the White House and throughout uh, your friend Dr. Carson and I became friends and people of quality uh, I wouldn't uh, have passed that by it was worth doing um, so as we as we um Oh, let me. How can people go out and get your book? Don't let me neglect that. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. Well, it's you know, I th obviously you can order it from any of the, the Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, and so forth, independent bookstores. Yeah. You know, um, obviously, the country seems to be a different country every year. Could they've handled this Trump and Biden, the pandemic, the protocols better? You know, I I think it's too early to tell. Uh, it, it wasn't handled with with you know with much deftness, okay? But maybe there wasn't a way to handle it with much deftness. Right now, it's too early to tell who was right and who was wrong. You know, was Sweden right the way they handled it? Some would say yes. Now it turns out Sweden was right. A lot of countries that have been pointed to. You know, when I was in the government, is oh, they're doing it right, Trump's doing it wrong. Well, they ended up in a worse position. Uh, and we have a federalist system. And so, uh, oh, right, yeah, we have a federal system. And so, you know, there was naturally some messiness in it because the governors have a say, too. Uh, so, uh, you know, what do you hope that people take away from your book? Number one, I, I did, I tell my own story briefly. Uh, and I and I talked uh, a little bit about the history of Bush a lot on the Trump administration but it's not all just me and him it's some of the big issues that we've discussed already here and some other ones too like big tech and other issues like that 
But then I end up talking about, I think there's a big opportunity for the Republican Party and conservatism going forward because I think people have seen the heavy hand of the progressives and their totalitarian temperament. And I think they're open to a more conservative message. And uh, so I think there's a big opportunity for the party going forward. 30 seconds. Did you have a good relationship with Pelosi and Schiff? No. You did? No. Did you trust him? No. Were they honest brokers? No. No. <laughs> Were they any different from the Republicans? Oh, yeah, I had a good relationship with them. Yeah. And your thoughts on um, Mitch McConnell? I think Mitch McConnell is, is very underrated, and I feel he gets un unfairly attacked from both sides. Uh, but uh, I think he very deftly manages. He, he has to herd cats, and uh, he does a very uh, good job of, of, of doing that, I think. Thank you for listening to this week's episode 